All right. Let's go ahead and get into our chronological journey through the Gospels. This is lesson number 31, if you're keeping track. I am um, putting these together. And we are in that Galilean ministry. And there's a change here in, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And we'll work our way through various Gospels today. And largely the Galilean ministry is dealt with in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is somewhat out of the story, uh, but he will get into the story uh, in just a few weeks. We'll be looking at the Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, all four Gospels talk about that event. It was such a large event in the ministry of Jesus Christ that all four Gospels recorded that event. And it became really a turning point in the ministry as well. Right now you're in the midst of Jesus's year of popularity. And actually when we talk about the Galilean ministry, we're talking about a period that is about 18 months long or a year and a half long. So it's not just, you know, uh, a one year But uh, for Jesus, one year, A.D. 32, we might say. I don't know if those dates are exactly correct, but that is a common thought of the ministry of Christ. But it stretched out into about a year and a half. And by the time he comes to the feeding of the 5,000, we have already seen and we'll see today a turning away of the religious rulers against Jesus and John the Baptist. They were always skeptical, but there will be a change. Next week, we'll get into that change with the teaching of the parables. Jesus will even change how he teaches the people. So he hasn't done that yet. The parables begin in our study next week, but we'll see that change in a teaching style when the people and the religious rulers begin to turn away from Christ at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, the common people begin to turn away from Christ. And uh, right now we see the religious rulers beginning to try to figure out how they can get rid of Jesus at this point. But here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is on the move again. He had done the... uh, Sermon on the Mount, he had went to Capernaum, he went to the city of Nain, and now he begins a second short-term missionary journey, we could say, with his disciples. And the first time he went out, he sent his disciples out two by two, and he came in behind them. So they went out as advance men, and he came in behind them, going from city to city. This time, Jesus goes out with his disciples And so he goes from, as it says in Luke 8, verse 1, he goes through every city, village, preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So this is a a second short-term missionary journey that Jesus went out during this year and a half of the Galilean ministry, what is known as his year of popularity. But his popularity is already beginning to wane in some Segments, especially the religious rulers, by the time he feeds the 5,000. And there's also the feeding of the 4,000. Many will begin to turn away from Jesus. So this is his second tour of the Galilee. And it marks a rising tension between Jesus and the religious rulers. I titled this because 
Uh, We're going to cover a portion of Scripture that a lot of people have had questions on, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I titled it Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. This seems to be um, something that many people have questioned. Have I committed this blasphemy? Jesus said, whoever commits such a blasphemy cannot be forgiven. And so it's been a great concern within the church. And so we want to look at that. That's our third point. But we're going to begin by looking at certain women. Three are named for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to see a house divided from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. And finally, the unpardonable sin, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. And so we're going to be covering three different Gospels, but um, some of these... More than one gospel speaks about the events going on. But here in our first point, certain women, only Luke tells us of this. And so we read, I'll read the context, it's very short, only three verses. He says, now it came to pass, Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Shuez, Herod Stuart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. And so here we find certain women, three named, many others are mentioned in here. But in verse 1, it tells us that after, afterwards, after the Sermon on the Mount, after his healing of the sermon of the servant of the centurion there in Capernaum, he raised the widow's son from, de- from death in name, went on to talk about Jesus healing many with affirmities, um, afflictions, evil spirits, giving sight to the blind. He was anointed, we learned about this last week, from a once sinful woman in the house of a Pharisee named Simon, anointed with oil. And his disciples and Jesus begin this second tour. And you can look up the timeline of Jesus Christ. Most of them describe it as the second tour of the Galilee. So that's kind of common in the theological Circles. So he's on the second tour when he went through every city, every village, preaching and bringing glad tidings, talking about the kingdom of God there in the Galilee. And the kingdom of God speaks about God's rule here upon this earth, but God's rule over heaven and over the earth. Psalm 22, 28, David recognized the rule of God in saying, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nation. And so one of the problems we have in our world today is that we have world leaders today that do not recognize that God rules over the nations. King Nebuchadnezzar did not recognize that God ruled over the nations in his day, and God humbled him by making him become beast-like for a period of seven seasons. And when he came out of that, part of his proclamation concerning God and only part of that is found in Daniel chapter 4 but he said in verse 34 of Daniel 4 I Nebuchadnezzar lifted up 
my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He was, according to Daniel's image, the image of gold. And in defiance of God saying there's other empires going to rise up after you, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. And some believe that in his defiance was saying, there's going to be no other nations rising up after me. And so instead of just a head of gold, he made a full image of gold. Of course, you know, that's the accounts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the Lord would humble him, and he would realize that God's dominion is from everlasting to everlasting, from generation to generation. So the kingdom of God. Matthew used this phrase five times in his gospel, but he liked to use the phrase the kingdom of heaven, using it 32 times in his gospel. And it was a message that Jesus and John the Baptist preached according to Matthew, Matthew 3, verse 2, Matthew 4, verse 17. We have first the testimony of John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 2. Then the testimony of Jesus, Matthew 4, 17. It was the same gospel. They both said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Once again, the psalmist in Psalm 103:19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all the earth. So certain women, three named for us here in verses two and three, we have Mary called Magdalene or Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna and Susanna and Along with the 12, there were women who traveled with Jesus, three referred to by name in this passage. They were all healed by Jesus, either of evil spirits, as Mary Magdalene, the Lord cast out seven spirits. That sounds pretty extreme, her condition that the Lord found her in, but also it could be of infirmities that they might have had. These three women, along with many others, they helped to provide and care for the needs of Jesus and the disciples as they traveled around and te- taught. And you can imagine that meals were being prepared and they were providing for. Mary Magdalene, we know her as one, as Luke tells us, from which came out seven demons. And Jesus found her in a place of very dire straits. Her situation was horrific, and yet after the touch of Jesus in her life, she was one of many who followed Jesus while he ministered in the Galilee, but she didn't limit it to the Galilee. She followed him into the area of Judea and Jerusalem. She was there watching Jesus as he died upon the cross, according to Matthew 27:55 and Mark 15:41. She, along with the other women and the apostle John, there as well. She went and watched when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus in the tomb. And three days later, she was there at the empty tomb wanting to anoint and properly prepare the body of Jesus. But when the women came that morning, an angel appeared to them and told them that the Christ that they were looking for, that he was not there, that he had risen. And that same morning when Mary went out with the women 
And then it seems that the ladies that she went with ended up going back or she went separate. She hung out a little longer. She was found by Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to Mary first while she wept there at the tomb. And she was the first to proclaim our risen Savior. Joanna, the only other information that we have about her is that she was with the women that went to the empty tomb on that glorious resurrection morning in Luke 24, 5 through 7. When the angels appeared and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember that he spoke to you about these things when he was in the Galilee. We heard Jesus. Uh, she, Jesus was telling that he would die and that he would rise from the grave while they were in the Galilee. Maybe perhaps in the second tour of the Galilee, he began to teach the people about his coming. Sacrifice upon the cross, saying, Luke 24, verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day. But even when they shared the news of Jesus' resurrection with his disciples, who also heard Jesus teach these same things, Luke 24, 11 tells us that the women's words seemed like idle tales. They did not believe them. Susanna, this is the only mention. All we have is her name. But uh, let me ask you, is your, are you mentioned by name in Scripture anywhere? I mean, my, that's my name. That's me. <laughs> There's some Johns in there for me, but it's not me, of course. We only have Susanna mentioned here, but uh, we know nothing more of her. Maybe there's some tradition about her, but we don't know that information. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, as well as many other ladies, having been touched by Jesus, they served him with their lives from their own substance. First Peter 4.10 reminds us, each one of us, having received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When the Lord touches our lives, he gives us gifts, he gives us abilities that we might serve one another. Here we have that example with these three women. And as the redeemed of Jesus, we are to serve one another. In our second point, we're going to go to Matthew 12, verses 22 through 30. So a little longer section of scripture. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. But it's also found in Mark 3, verses 20 through 27, Luke 11, verses 14 through 23. So the three synoptic gospels all talk about this portion of scripture. I went to Matthew because he gives us a little bit of the backstory that Mark and Luke do not give. So in Mark and Luke's gospel, we don't learn about this demonic possessed man who is both blind and mute that was brought to Jesus. And so we get a little bit of the backstory that sets up rather well the situation that we're going to look at now. And so that backstory found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 22 and 23, the healing of a blind and mute man. Then one who was brought to him, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. 
And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? So the miraculous work of Christ in this once blind and mute man causes the people to wonder, is this the Messiah? And that's basically what they are saying here. After Jesus healed the man with the withered hand back in Matthew 12:14, it tells us on that same day the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So right now the religious rulers are plotting how are we going to get rid of this guy? And yet the common people are flocking to Jesus. In Mark 6:34, it reminds us as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' popularity caused most of the religious rulers to feel threatened by him. And Mark sets up this occasion by stating that the multitudes were so great, Mark 3, 20 through 21, that they could not so much as eat bread. And his own people heard about this. They went out to lay hold of him. And so Mark tells us a different angle of this account that it was so busy that Jesus and his disciples barely had time to eat. And Mark used a Greek word, his own people. It's an idiom that refers to a kinsman or a family member, not friends. His friends came to get him. No, his family showed up to get him. And Mark 3.21, the family was saying of Jesus, he's out of his mind. So even now, Jesus' own brothers did not believe, John 7, verse 5. Though they had good intentions, the Gospel of John tells us that even his brothers did not believe him. And families and friends can often misunderstand God's call upon a believer's life. Families and friends can often misunderstand the call of God in a believer's life. You go and you share with your family and friends, I got saved. And they're thinking, saved from what? What are you talking about? Lily and I went to, at the time, my mom, her mom and dad, we're moving to California. Why? And especially my mom was just, didn't want me to go because she didn't want me to go. Lily's dad didn't want us to go because it wasn't logical. You're leaving good jobs to go to California to take lesser paying jobs. Why? This doesn't make sense. It just didn't make sense to them. Families and friends often misunderstand God's call in a believer's life. But as the years go by... It either gets worse or there is something that happens within those families and friends when they go through bad times. Usually they're not looking for a buddy to cry on, but they're looking for someone who can offer hope and help. And perhaps the fact that you have been walking in faith with Jesus Christ gives them a glimmer of hope that they end up reaching out to you. Lily and I have seen this happen in our own families' lives. So Matthew tells of a demon-possessed man who is both blind and mute, being brought to Jesus, being healed by them, by Jesus, that both the blind and mute man spoke and saw. This being that he spoke and saw, to me, says that if he could speak, he wasn't born this way. Something had happened 
to cause him to be this way. The demonic possession would be the reason for it because he, he knew how to speak. He didn't have to learn how to speak. So that's just something that's been rolling around in my mind that he got in a situation that took away his sight, took away his speech. But now he's healed by Jesus. It caused the people to wonder, could this be the son of David? The son of David, a messianic title that connects Jesus with the prophecy of David known as the Davidic Covenant. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. And in this chapter, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. The Lord had been in the tabernacle in the sense, in the figurative sense, I guess we could say, traveling around with the children of Israel since the tabernacle had been um, erected there in the wilderness and there in the promised land during the time of Joshua and the judges and now the time of the kings. And David had been established in a house in Jerusalem and it was his desire to get God out of a tent. God was, you know, not physically in the tent. His spirit was upon that. His eyes looked upon that place. But God is over all the earth. God is not contained in a temple or a tabernacle. But in the human perspective, get God out of the tent and into a permanent structure. And the Lord told David, I can't allow you to build me a house. And the Lord first said to David, when have I ever asked? I'm fine where I'm at. When have I ever asked for a house? But he said, you have too much blood on your hands. I can't allow you to build the house, but I'll let your son build the house for me. But rather, the Lord said to David, I'll build you a house. So the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 11. Also, the Lord tells you, Nathan, the prophet speaking. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish his the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. So there's a twofold fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. The first speaking of Solomon, David's offspring that would become the next king. And it was Solomon that built the temple. But the second is found in Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that David's house, his kingdom, his throne has been established forever. So by questioning, could this be the son of David? They were asked actually asking, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised Messiah? And this question enraged, enraged the Pharisees, along with accusing Jesus. They accused him in Luke eleven sixteen, of not only uh, casting out demons by Beelzebub, others testing him. They sought from him a sign from heaven. But the works... Jesus talked about the works, the miracles he was doing. He said, if you don't believe my words in John 10, verses 37 through 38, then believe the works that I do, verse 38. Though you do not believe me, speaking about his words, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So they couldn't deny that a great miracle had taken place. The people who were there 
There was a blind and mute man who's suddenly able to see. How many fingers do I have up? Oh, five. He can see, but he could, and he could talk. So it caused division. Verses 24 through 26. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to destruction. Every city, every house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Beelzebub was an ancient Canaanite deity. His name meant Lord of the Flies. Some scholars translate this as Beelzebul, which they believe better fits meaning the Lord of the dwelling place or the Lord over the evil spirits that dwell in mankind. But Beelzebub, a religious rulers, having authority among the common people, they attempted to sow seeds of unbelief about Jesus. They questioned the miracle they couldn't deny. So they tried to say that he was casting out demons by Satan himself. And Jesus just responded, this is crazy. If a house is divided, a kingdom is divided, a city is divided, it will not stand. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul, speaking about the gospel being veiled, he said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. The Pharisees' minds have been blinded by Satan himself. A veil had been put over them so that they could not believe. The people were in a place where they were at that point to where they are questioning, is this the Messiah? Why is Satan able to blind the eyes of unbelievers so easily? It's because... Well, Romans 1.28 tells us they did not retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over, therefore, to debase minds, to do those things which are not fitting. There are some people in our world today that every day of their life, they never have a thought toward God. And I don't understand that. I've always thought about God. I've always thought about Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in this world. But they have been blinded to these things. So the Pharisees try to sow seeds of hate against Jesus. And Jesus comes back in verses 27 through 30. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So there were, we'll read about it in the book of Acts, um, Jewish exorcists. And so Jesus is basically asking, if your own exorcists cast out demons, if I'm doing it by Beelzebub, who are they casting out demons by? They will tell you that they cast them out by the power of God. Therefore, 
They shall be your judges, verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds him, the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So the religious rulers, did they have any evidence of Jesus casting out demon, uh, casting out this demon by Satan himself? Of course not. <laughs> it's a lot like our politics today that we are just in the hotbed of political season here with the midterms elections coming up. And I would encourage you to vote. Make sure you get your vote in. I'll send out... Paul graciously sent me some information that I'll relay to you to help you in the decisions that you have. But um, they tend to try to twist things that you might say, make them have a different meaning than what they actually were meant to say. And they were very good politicians, it appears, here Jesus said, if I cast out these by the Spirit of God, then know this, that the kingdom of God is upon you. He went on to talk about Satan as the strong man being bound up. And now he's plundering Satan's house. Ultimately, he has, through the power of the Holy Spirit, dominion over Satan always. But there was that conquering upon the cross, the power of sin and death where Jesus won the victory ultimately there upon the cross where Colossians 2.15 tells us having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing, triumphing over them in it. But we need never forget that our adversary seeks to destroy us. Peter warns, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And though we may be sober and vigilant, our victory over Satan does not come in our own strength, but it comes in Christ alone. May you never forget that he who is in us, and that's First John 4, 4. I think I have John 4, 4 written here. But it's First John, First John 4, 4. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And though the religious rulers were sowing seeds of doubt, Jesus does not argue about the divide between believers and unbelievers. Rather, he acknowledges it. We need to know that we stand with the strong man, the one who has bound Satan. It's kind of a great picture. If you're in trouble, you always want to have that champion on your side. Jesus is such a champion for us today. So it gets into the unpardonable sin. It's found in Mark 3, verses 28 through 30. We're going to look at it there. Also here in Luke 12, verses 31 through 32. So now we have the context of where this teaching uh, came out of. Jesus, teaching about the unpardonable sin, speaks about the religious rulers rejecting Jesus, accusing Jesus of the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit, 
claiming that these were rather the power of Satan, Beelzebub. So in Matthew 3.28 it says, Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. And so that's just a statement from the Lord, all sins. So it begins with the word assuredly. It's I mean, the Greek word we translate as amen. It's spelt the same, although it doesn't quite look the same. In the Greek, um, it is just translated, transliterated right from the Greek, amen. So it began by saying amen. So normally we're used to an amen being at the end of a prayer. Amen, at the end of the prayer, so be it, so let it be fulfilled. It's kind of the period on the prayer. But when it begins at the beginning of a statement, amen, amen, or surely, surely, or truly, truly, it's really talking about something that is a revealed truth, a a surety, something that has been confirmed. So he begins with the amen. Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. All sins. Every blasphemy will be forgiven men. Matthew 12, 31. Luke 12, 10. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. And at the great white throne judgment of God, when all humanity is being judged, there's two judgment thrones, the BBC judgment throne, that of the judgment of believers and that of unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. There at the great white throne judgment, books will be opened. In Revelation 20, 12, it says, I saw the dead, the small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. And the dead were judged according to their works by which were written in the books. So all will be judged. And Jesus says, all sins will be revealed. All sins will be forgiven. In a sense, you won't go to judgment in hell because of the multiple sins, but if only one sin brings you to eternal damnation, that is, verses 29 through 30, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So bringing it back into the context, they said he had an unclean spirit. The religious rulers who said he does this work by Beelzebub, so brings it back into the context. They accredited the work of the Holy Spirit to that of Satan. And that, the Lord said, is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness concerning Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today in John 15:26. When the Helper comes, he has already come. But then it was before he came, before the day of Pentecost, that's recorded to us in the book of Acts. Jesus said, when the helper comes, John 15, 26, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The work of the Holy Spirit is to bring testimony concerning Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives witness to the work of Jesus and those who believe in that witness will not be condemned. Those who do not believe, they already stand condemned. John points this out in John 
3.18 where it says, He who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Begotten Son of God. So we can conclude that that unpardonable sin is the rejection of the Spirit's witness concerning Jesus to, in context, to accredit the work of Christ or the work of the Holy Spirit to that of Satan. By rejecting Jesus, you also reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit who testifies of Jesus and those who commit this sin. Jesus said there'll be no forgiveness. They'll have eternal condemnation. So this kind of takes out the thought of soul sleep. After you die, you sleep for a while, you'll be resurrected back to life. It takes out reincarnation. You live one life, you don't get it quite right, and you get reincarnated again to try it again and die, and you don't get it quite right. So the reincarnated again to try it again to die, and you just keep going in this eternal reincarnation uh, cycle until you get it right. You'll never get it right without Jesus. But also no purgatory. That you die in this life, an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, that you can have family members who would pay your way out of hell, out of purgatory into heaven, or you spend so much time in purgatory, you eventually work your way out because of time served. There's no time served. It's only through Jesus that we are saved. His work, not our works. And so to this day, while we're on this earth, it's because of the work of Jesus that salvation is afforded to us, not by our works alone, but his works alone, the work that he did upon the cross. And even after this life, not through purgatory, you're not going to work your way out of hell into heaven, not because of your works, but by grace we have been saved. So Peter 4, 5 and 6 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirits. The gospel is preached that we might come to life-saving faith in Jesus Christ, to hear the witness of the Holy Spirit of God. And many have argued that God is unfair by sending someone to help, perhaps who have never heard the name of Jesus. But their condemnation is not based on that. It's speaking against the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. It's rejecting the witness, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me for a moment. Ultimately, that brings us to Jesus. But the Word of God tells us in Romans 1, 20 and 21, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And the Holy Spirit gives testimony just by looking at the creation. Since the world was created, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. 
And I believe that the Holy Spirit gives testimony in the hearts of all mankind concerning the truth of God. If someone's heart is soft toward the Spirit's witness, then God will give further revelation and present to them the plan of redemption that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if the hearts remained closed and the Spirit's witness, God will then allow those hearts to become even darker and darker. Romans 3, 24 through 26 saying, Being justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the, un, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' teaching about the unpardonable sin has caused a lot of anguish for a lot of people throughout the ages. But we look at the context It's talking about unbelieving religious rulers who had accredited the work of the Holy Spirit to that of demonic activity. And of this, Jesus said there could be no forgiveness. Thankfully, the strong man has been bound by Jesus, ultimately through Jesus' work upon the cross. And have you believed in the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus as the Savior of the world? The only way to ensure that you do not commit the unpardonable sin is by accepting the testimony of the Spirit in your life, by believing and receiving Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior of your life. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, something that has troubled many throughout the ages. It talks about the total rejection of the witness of the Spirit concerning Jesus, accrediting the work of the Spirit to that of Satan. So we have certain women. In Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, we've seen that there were many women, three named for us there, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. But many women traveled with Jesus. They served Jesus because the Lord Jesus had saved them. We should be those who desire to serve one another. A house divided, we've learned in Matthew 12:22 through 30, that a house divided cannot stand. That's why we've seen in even Christian circles and countries and nations, in churches, in Christian circles, that church is split. It's usually because the house is divided. They cannot stand. But we need to know, as Jesus said, the strong man has been bound. Satan has been bound. And we need to stand with the one who has bound the strong man, Jesus Christ. That unpardonable sin, the only way that we can ensure we do not commit the unpardonable sin is by receiving Jesus, accepting the testimony of the Holy Spirit, by believing and receiving the work of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over your life. So one story just kind of rolling around in my head. I said it before, I told Lily about it. I was trying to find it online today. Uh, this week on Friday, actually, but I couldn't. But I remember being in probably fifth or sixth grade back in the day when Happy Days just was becoming popular. I remember 
dressing up for Halloween. It's that time of year, right? Um, as the Fonz. Do you know the first episode? He didn't have a leather jacket. Uh, that was introduced by the character, but not in the first episode. So I didn't have a leather jacket when I was in fifth or sixth grade. But I had a jacket that kind of looked like the one he was wearing. And, you know, I took the collar and put it up and went to school, combed my hair, probably wore sunglasses. I don't know. But I was for a day trying to be Arthur Fonzarelli. But there's an episode that I've never forgotten where I tried YouTubing it and I told Lily the thing that came up was people are fascinated with Mork from Ork because you YouTube Happy Days and that's the episodes they like to, you know, introduction of Mork there on Happy Days who they had their own show. We know how that played out if you're old enough. Some of you is like, what's he talking about? <laughs> so I was in fifth or sixth grade. They had an episode where Satan's nephew began to mess with um, what was not Arthur Fonzarelli, but uh, the kid, Richie. So it was Satan's nephew shows up and he does magical things. Every time he did something magical, and this is back in the day where you saw an episode and you never saw it again until it made it to reruns. This is back in the day when it was a one-time shot. They didn't show it later next week or you didn't see it for a long time. But every time this nephew would do some trick, he would always say, Beelzebub. That was the word that was used. I remember going to school the next day with the kids saying, Beelzebub. Lord of the Flies, one episode of a television show that all kids watched back in the day. They began to cry out one of the pagan gods of the Canaanites on the very next day. Now, TV's gotten a lot worse. And this is a season where People are focusing in on demonic things, having their minds filled with demonic things. We need to turn away from such things. Keep our eyes on the Lord. Not cry out regarding Beelzebub, but crying out that Jesus saves. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us this day. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we close out in the song of worship. I pray, Father, that you would... Lord, help us to gain a greater understanding of your word. Help us to be like the women who traveled with you in the Galilee, some following you into Judea and Jerusalem, who served you not only, Lord, during your earthly ministry, but were found with the church even after your death, serving you, Lord, sharing the gospel with others that you have risen from the grave, Help us to be like such, Lord, who have been touched and saved by you that we want to serve one another. Help us, Lord, not be those who want to divide within the church, always looking uh, for a witch hunt, trying to find trouble, 
But help us, Lord, to be those who want to unify based upon the truth of your word, always based upon the truth of your word. So help us, Lord, to be those who want to stand in truth. Those, Lord, who have heard the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that we might believe in Jesus and be saved. And I pray, Lord, if there are those who don't know you as Savior, that they would respond to your gospel message today. And Lord, we would be those who would lift up the name of Jesus in this generation that we find ourselves in. Help us to be strong witnesses for you, knowing, Lord, that you have bound the strong man. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. This, Lord, we believe. In the name of Jesus, amen.